0: Turn in your Bibles to the very first book, Genesis, if you will, the very first book of our Bible. Last year, as we walked through the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, you received 44 messages, 22 chapters about Jesus, 62 titles of Jesus, more than any other book in the Bible. Uh, We found 62 mentions of the revelation of jesus as he king of kings consummates the ages through his redemptive work to bring glory and honor to him and then to gather all of his elect in the new jerusalem with a new heaven and a new earth without sin no sorrow sickness suffering or death anymore that is what we look forward to that is the future hope that allows us to live faithfully today that is who we rest our faith in. But that connection, that finality that lets us live faithfully today is tied all the way back to the very beginning. And so as Pastor Stephen and I prayed uh, for God's clear leading for, for Crossroad for 2023, God, the Holy Spirit led us to go back to the very first book of the Bible. So we will have preached on the last book and the first book, and we'll fill you in on the everything in between as the Lord leads over the years. But here in the book of beginnings, we are going to find this glorious truth. Sin destroys, but God delivers. As we introduce Genesis, it's my goal today and next Sunday to give you two introductory messages on the content and overview of the book of Genesis. And then we're going to dive in deeply. Pastor Stephen and I are going to be sharing some pulpit responsibilities this year. So you'll hear from him several times. Uh, His first opportunity will be January the 15th uh, to preach to you. He won't get a chance to preach again until March. uh, But we will be sharing pulpit responsibilities as we walk through the book of Genesis. And the theme, Sin Destroys... God Delivers is a theological foundational theme from the book of Genesis that will guard our thoughts today. So as we think of this wonderful thing, we're gonna gonna talk about the theme overall of the book. And that is this, God's beginnings always include his deliverance. God's beginnings always include his deliverance. So think about this with me. As humans, we all love hearing and telling good stories. Uh, How many of you are a sucker for a good book? How about a good audio book? (laughs) How about a good tall tale, right? All of us love stories. How about a good movie, right? Uh, Movies are just visual media, print media in visual story form. And um, our lives are often that way. And so uh, Elizabeth got a gift for Christmas that was a game And the game was essentially uh, you draw a card and you have to tell a story about your life based on what the card says. And that was really fun. We played that yesterday and we all kind of went around and some of them were embarrassing stories. Some of them were funny stories. Some of them were a little sobering. Uh, Some of them were, um, you know, uh, exciting, but they were all stories about our lives. We love to tell stories. God has geared us to be storytellers and story listeners all good stories share commonalities that in modern literature we refer to as a hook, a character and a voice. So in good stories, you'll find a story that often starts with a hook. It, can, it includes great characters, character development, characters that you love, characters that you hate, characters that you hate to love and love to hate, um, characters that are static, characters that are dynamic, Characters that change over time, characters that refuse to change, even though they should. All good stories have a hook, have character, and they have a voice. And what, do I, what I mean by voice is that the narrative is, is so beguiling or so striking that the reader instantly understands the main character or the one whose point of view they are experiencing. It is in, uh, when, we, when we see good stories, we're always intrigued to find out more. Many stories, at least in our heritage as English-speaking American Americans, many stories often begin with the tr- traditional f- phrases or transitional phrases like "once upon a time" or "there once was a." And you can probably think of some others if you looked up the top ten um, good story hooks. You'll find um, some of the uh, some of the great historical writers and the classics and their first lines and their opening forays to grab your attention. Friends, the book of Genesis is a great true story. In fact, its greatest hook starts in chapter one, verse one. And if you're there with me, you see that incredible hook in the beginning, God. Now there is nothing more fathomless, more bottomless, more omnipotent, uh, more uh, un, un, uh, unknowable in the sense of unplumbable than the depths of who God is and what he's done. And the book of Genesis begins with this phrase, in the beginning, God. It leaves the reader wanting to know more about this person that's introduced in such a dynamic way. It leaves the reader with a question, what about God? And as we note, in the beginning, God works. What does he do? He creates. In the beginning, God created. And what did he create? The heavens and the earth. So everything in the outer expanses of our universe to the smallest, from the smallest microbe and space particle to the largest planet or, or a star astronomical body in the heavens, God created in the beginning all things. The scripture tells us in John 1, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, God in the beginning is the great beginning and the great, great beginner. The great story of God's creation begins with a wonderful hook. In the beginning, God. So this book of beginnings Is not just the start of our Bible, but where did we get that title? Well, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this, um, the word that's used in the beginning um, is the word that describes beginnings or Genesis. And so this is how we get the title Genesis. But there, uh, as we look, as we walk through the narrative section by section, we're going to ask and answer the question, how does Genesis showcase sin's destruction and God's deliverance? Because remember, I told you the great theme of Genesis is that sin destroys, but God delivers. Here in the beginning, God creating everything out of nothing, we find that explanation unfolding in chapter 1. In chapter two, we're going to find that explanation uh, being zoomed in on as if he's saying, hey, this is how it all started. Uh, Evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two, evening and morning, day three, evening and morning, day four, evening and morning, day five, evening and morning, day six, evening and morning, day seven. On day seven, God rested from all his work. And then let's zoom in and find out what a little bit more detail about what happened in on day six. And that's what Genesis 2 then unfolds. But as that uh, instruction begins to unfold, we know the greatest character of the greatest story ever told was introduced to us in the hook, the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, who is the character? God. So if I were to ask a child based on that information, What is the Bible about? Or rather, who is the Bible about? The answer would simply be God, right? The classic Sunday school answer, right? It's either God or Jesus, right? Is Who's the Bible? God, Jesus, right? Who is the Bible about? It's about God. In the beginning, God. What did God do? God created. What did he create? Everything. He created everything. And friends, as we see this beautiful story and this dynamic opening, this incredible hook with these deep and abiding characters, this multifaceted character God that we're introduced to, we're going to find that the narrative of Scripture then unfolds for us all kinds of things about God. If we were to get into the nitty gritty, which will be something that we do later in sermons, since this is just an overview, um, if we're going to get into it, we're going to find Several names of God that are that are uh, opening to us here in the book of Genesis. In fact, this first use of the term God is the word Elohim, and so uh, the word L is the singular uh, noun form of God in the beginning El, but it's not just L; El, it's Elohim. Um, in fact, it is it's a masculine, uh, it's a masculine noun, Elohim, but it's also plural. Okay. Now, uh, here in the translation, it's translated singular, in the, in the beginning, God, and it's rightly translated singular, but uh, it has a, a divine plural because God exists in three persons. Now, here in the text, we find in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit of God moved or hovered on the face of the waters, So here we're introduced to God. We're introduced to spirit of God. Later, as I've already quoted John 1, 1, and 2, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, who is that Logos? His name is Jesus. So in the beginning, God, we already know Elohim, this, this singular God in plural unity, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, Colossians 3:17 would say that all things exist or consist, are held together by the word of his power. Those that is the divine glue that binds the universe, the divine glue that has been eluding physicists now for centuries they wonder what is it that keeps atoms from flying apart why don't protons and electrons and neutrons just you know explode away from each other from the center of the atom and the answer is because of jesus that wonderful sunday school answer because of jesus all things consist by the word of his power in the beginning was the word friends This incredible story, this true story of God's creation sets the stage for us to walk through the book of Genesis. Now, in chapter one, 17 times, God, who's introduced as divine creator, says something. 17 times he describes this creation. After saying evening and morning, day one he says, he, he looked, he surveyed everything he had made and he found that it was good. 17 times God says, good, good, very good, good. Now there's one time he says not good. And I spent a lot of time preaching on that when it comes to weddings. Some of you think it's too much time as you're standing at the altar waiting for your, your, your dad to give you away. Uh, But yes, uh, that it is not good for man, Adam to be alone. So God, Caused a great sleep. The divine anesthetician put Adam to sleep and performed the first operation. And he pulled from Adam's side, close to his heart, a portion of his, of his own rib. So out of the dust, God would form uh, Adam and breathe into Adam that personal breath of life. But out of Adam's side, he would then form from Adam Eve, who would be the mother of all living and the partnership of man and woman, both made in the image of God, both co-equal joint heirs of the grace of life, both of equal and important value to God for the purpose of accomplishing God's order that was given in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth and have dominion over it. Both of them would be essential to God's plan. And in Genesis chapter one, this incredible divine narrator, God, father son spirit who out of nothing creates everything and then in six literal days calls it all good god in this divine story gets to tell us what is good he defines good he defines evil he defines what brings him glory and as we walk through the story um today it's not my goal to preach through genesis 1 Today, it's my goal to set the stage and ask the question, how does Genesis showcase sin's destruction and then God's deliverance? I will eventually preach through Genesis one, spend some time in cha- chapters one, two, and three for you. But before we do that, remember what happens in chapter three. Maybe it was a sunny morning when a slippery, slithery serpent of divine beauty slimed and slid his way up the side of a sycamore tree probably not sycamore since it was a fruit bearing tree and as he bathed and basked in the beauty of this garden that was a perfect place the garden of eden the place in the center of god's beautiful earth the place of perfect fellowship where God would walk and talk with Adam and Eve, his chief creation. And he would teach them and instruct them about all of the trees in the garden. And he would laugh perhaps with Adam about the names that he called crazy, curious creatures like elephants, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> God. God. Building a personal relationship as the divine creator of all things would walk and talk in this beautiful garden of perfection where there was no broken fellowship. There were no uh, things to hinder God's perfect relationship with his perfect creation and in slithers the serpent. And in Genesis chapter three, we don't have time for the narrative, but uh, theologically we'll walk through this at a later point. At some point between uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, uh, the celestial spiritual beings that are created, that live in the heavens, that worship with God, the angelic hosts of his chief creation, God created one called Lightbearer. And Lightbearer, who was a reflective luminary of God's glory, God being, think of God as the sun because the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, will be the light of the universe for all eternity. Remember that in the book of Revelation, right? Amen. There will be no need for artificial light in the new heaven and the new earth because God is light. He's the creator of all light and he himself is light. But God created a being, a luminous being that would radiate and reflect and perhaps showcase, direct God's light. Now, I have a vivid imagination. I know none of you could tell that. Not only am I an animated Italian who has to talk with his hands. But I had a vivid imagination. And every time I thought, I think of the light-bearing Lucifer, I often think of some of the horrible things that I did as a kid. And I'm going to embarrass myself. But my mom's in heaven right now. So she can't blush um, because she was the one who caught me doing this and was so upset. But uh, I don't even know where I learned it. Probably science class. So I can blame my science teacher in fourth grade. Actually, it was a fourth grade science teacher. Uh, But I discovered this nifty little trick where I could take an object that was made of glass called a magnifying glass. And that magnifying glass would take the rays of the sun and would direct them very finely and target a singular spot in a singular location. And it would harness the power of the sun and the sun's heat and radiation. And it would catch fire to certain things. And if those things happen to be crawling in an an, an orderly fashion, carrying food back to their little hill, uh, after a while, the heat of the sun that was refined to a singular point would begin to burst those said creatures, uh, and they would make loud popping sounds along the way. I'm glad children aren't in here listening to this. I know. uh, What is wrong with me? Why would I kill poor little ants? I'm supposed to go to the ant thou sluggard and consider her ways and be wise uh, for she stores up for the winter and time of harvest. And I should be considering the ant, but instead I was exploding the ant. And I remember being in so much trouble for that. God's creation is precious and I should not have been, you know, destroying ants. But I, 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 I say that to say God's beautiful creation His chief worshiper, his chief musician, no doubt, in heaven, Lucifer, was one who would direct and radiate and reflect the light of God. And yet he wanted glory for himself. And when he fell, he took uh, a third of the innumerable hosts with him. That is described for us in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel. And we find that at some point uh, before Genesis chapter 3, Satan has now been, has now fallen And Satan is now attempting to distract and destroy God's creation and God's creatures. And so he, Satan, inhabits the sneaky, slithery, slimy serpent who slipped up the side of a sycamore. Not sycamore, but a tree that was fruit-bearing. And I'm just trying to think of S's here, you know, because it sounds like a snake. And so as he gets up on the branch and he is, Satan is influencing this creature Satan deceives Eve, but Adam willfully chooses to disobey God. And God's beautiful creation is destroyed. Why? Because sin destroys. Yet in that destruction, in the wake of that disaster, maybe some of you have seen uh, now released footage from over 80 years ago, the first nuclear bomb test in the desert of New Mexico, I believe it was New Mexico or Nevada, I'm not sure which was New Mexico, uh, you you saw the mushroom cloud recorded and how the explosion of that first low-grade atomic bomb uh, actually caused a wake of devastation for hundreds of miles and a plume of irradiated uh, atmospheric uh, fallout as well. And unfortunately, man had harnessed the power of the sun and it transformed that into an incredible weapon that we later used to end World War II. And like it or not, we've used that as a threat to keep man at bay for now nearly a century. And yet, there was no greater destruction, no greater nuclear explosion or implosion than the destructive power of sin. And when Adam sinned, it affected everyone. Not just at that moment, but through the annals of time. The wake and the expansion of the explosion of the destructive nature of sin has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And so sin destroys. And when we see the narrative of Genesis, we're going to find wherever man goes, because man is now fallen and in sin, they're sinners by nature and by choice, by birth and by choice, because of Adam's failure, because of Adam's disobedience. Wherever man goes, they leave a wake of destruction in their path because sin destroys. But what we find there at the very beginning of this great story, with this divine narrator, in the beginning God, the stories about God and about his incredible work. His most important work that he ever did was to create with his own hands, form and fashion the chief of creation, mankind, and to breathe into Adam the breath of life and to breathe into Eve the breath of life. And so man made in his image and fashioned in his likeness, man, image bearers of God, would be God's way to save this creation. And in Genesis 3, 15, when God curses the serpent, the ground, and mankind, God slips into that curse a promise. I will crush your head, the serpent's head. Through a seed, something that comes from outside of self, God I the deliverer will intervene to deliver through a seed and the seed's heel will be bruised that promise that hook that story that narrative transition is the truth that binds all mankind together the truth that reveals to us something more about the character of our good God who gets to define what is good and what is evil, who gets to declare how important man and woman of equal value made in his image are to his plan. And God would step in to deliver. By the way, in chapter four, we find that Eve took that deliverance promise personally and when her firstborn son was born, she assumed he was the tool of deliverance. Sadly, she was mistaken. Later, we'll find out that her firstborn son, Cain, actually went away from God's plan instead of toward God. But we ask and answer this question, how does Genesis showcase sin's destruction and God's deliverance? Oh, let me count the ways that it showcases God's uh, sin, uh, sin's destructive power. And we're going to see that as we walk through the narrative. We're going to see in the book of Genesis very real stories about real people who really lived in a real point in time, and they really had uh, uh, real problems, and they made real choices, and those real choices affected everybody around them because sin destroys. But we're going to see God always delivers. So we're going to see two facts about this or two realities about Genesis that are going to help us today and um, I'm my, actually my message is going to be sweeping and broad and hopefully quicker than normal the transition of the book of Genesis then reveals sin's destructive narrative and God's deliverance through its narrative structure and its theological message. So today as we follow an overview of Genesis, I've given you two points that is first of all we're going to see how God delivers though sin destroys, Under two points, number one, through the narrative structure of Genesis, and number two, through the theological message. Does that make sense? So the narrative of structure, excuse me, the structure of the narrative showcases how sin destroys and God delivers, as well as the the theological message of Genesis. The theological message of Genesis shows us how God delivers, even though sin destroys. As we walk through the narrative section uh, by section, we will discover that God's beginnings always include his deliverance. I said that on purpose. If you remember the beginning of this introduction, um, I asked the question or I I commented that every good story in modern history has a hook, right? Has characters and has a voice. And the hook, the characters and the voice uh, here in Genesis, as we walk through, we'll see them. But they all are structured in a certain way. They're structured around a statement or a phrase in English and good storytelling. We use the phrase, for example, once upon a time. Now, generally speaking, when we say once upon a time, we're going to talk about a fantasy tale. We're not going to talk about a true story, although um, many times you might say once upon a time and tell your kids a true story. We often we understand that phrase once upon a time is a transitionary phrase into a story or there once was a right. And so in the same way, we're going to find that there is a hook. There is a phrase that occurs 11 times in the book of Genesis. And from a narrative structural point, I want you and I don't have the outlines for you this week. I will print them, publish them. I wanted to actually include a couple of others. I wanted to include an exegetical outline, and I just didn't finish it. So I will, like I did with the book of Revelation back there on the green print forms, I will print out for you a narrative outline, exegetical outline, and thematic outlines of Genesis so that you can have them as we walk through them this year and follow along in our study. But as we look at this book, we're going to answer this question, though, this morning. So what what does it mean to me? As you sit and listen to this message that is defining this point of Genesis, sin destroys, God delivers, how does Genesis showcase that sin destroys and God delivers? Through its narrative structure and through its thematic uh, theological themes or thematic ideas that are theological, okay, through its message. So those two ways showcase sin destroys and God delivers, but you're sitting there and you're asking the question, pastor... So what? What does this mean to me? Is it just that, you know, I'm going to walk away and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I know a lot about Genesis. No. It means this. You and I must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys. Our God always delivers. Sin will always destroy Listen, the temptation that you and I receive, and it's not even a temptation from without, it's a temptation that comes from within. That temptation will always lie to us about God's goodness. Remember in the beginning, God said 17 times, it's very good. And what is the first thing that Satan does in chapter three? Has God said? Satan always asks, tempts you to disbelieve God's word disbelieve what god has said and sin will always take you farther than you want to go it'll keep you longer than you want to stay and it will have consequences far greater than you want to bear i can guarantee you that adam had no idea when he chose to disobey god that that explosive dynamic destructive uh, choice would have a ripple effect throughout all human history and all time. And by the way, that nuclear explosion by Adam could only be stopped by an all-powerful, almighty God who would intervene as deliverer. And so today, as we walk through these two points and then I close, here is the theme. Here is the thesis. Here is what we call the proposition for those expositors. We must trust God who delivers and we must reject sin that destroys. Friends, don't buy into the lie of Satan that sin is better than God's way because sin will always destroy. James put it this way, lust, when it's conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. In the very beginning, we find that death for Adam and Eve is first spiritual separation from God and later it's physical So spiritual separation from God and then physical separation from the body. Adam eventually dies as it is appointed unto men. It is appointed unto men once to die, scripture says. And after that, the judgment. Sin always destroys, but God delivers. So as we think about this truth, you and I must trust our God who delivers and rejects sin. Let's look at this first point this morning. God's deliverance displayed in Genesis narrative structure. So as we ask the question, uh, how does Genesis showcase sin's destruction and God's deliverance? Well, it showcases, first of all, through his narrative structure. Okay, narrative structure. And by the way, Pastor Stephen's probably going to publish this in a bulletin if you follow us on Faith Life, he's thumbs up which means it's already done. you can actually get the notes directly from Faith Life by joining Faith Life in the app, creating the account and then accessing it. So I want to show you and I'm already going to apologize because I know the way it's going to look, I'm going to show you two uh, narrative outlines that are very simple and they're going to look complex on the board because I couldn't figure out to get Lagos to stop putting them into individual slides. So I had like 11 slides and I put them into one, but the only way to do it was to lump it together in one blob. So I apologize for that, but when you can download it, you'll at least be able to see it. So let's talk about this narrative structure following 11 Toledoth statements. You're like, what? What in the world's a Toledoth? That's a great question. And here's the answer. The word Toledoth is the word that shows up repeatedly throughout the book to hook the reader and it forms a natural outline in the text so once upon a time there once was a genesis 11 times uses the word and that is a hook to the reader to say wait a second i'm transitioning to something new We'll say, well, I don't speak Hebrew, pastor. So what in the world does Toledoth mean? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Toledoth actually means or can be translated. It has various meanings. Some of the meanings include generations. So you'll see it show up as these are the generations of. Or it could be descendants. Or it could mean the account. This is the account of. Or it could mean story. This is the story of, right, um, the days of our lives, of the rich and famous. Uh, you remember that? I, I forget what the guy's name was, but it was the British guy that did the days of the lives of the rich and famous. So uh, this kind of idea, this Toledoth, has various meanings, but ultimately it has the meaning of generation, history of, or story, or account of. So the narrative pattern... Will then yield a theological message. And when God gives us the history of the story of the account of the generations of what is he showing? He's going to show us that sin in the beginning by Adam has now destroyed man and man's attempt to obey God. But God has to step in and deliver. And we're going to see in every time a Toledo shows up, sin destroys but God delivers. Sin destroys, but God delivers. And so simply put, oh, Stephen, bless you. I love having Stephen as a pastor. Look at him. He did that for me. Ah, I am speechless. Thank you, Stephen. I'm so happy. I am delighted. Thank you. I'm really simple. I'm easy to please, aren't I? So there you go. Here are the 11 times this word shows up. Okay, the 11 times, first and foremost, in the story of creation in the beginning. God. Okay, secondly, the generations of the heavens and earth. Look at Genesis 2, 4. What's it say? Genesis 2, 4. This is the history of that's the New King James, New King James translation. This is the history of turn with me to Genesis 5, 1. Look at Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the Genealogy of Adam, Toledo. Toledo. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. So Adam, then Noah. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Noah. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Okay. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. A son of Noah, how many did he have? Well, we saw that in verse chapter ten. He had three, but now we're gonna we're gonna hone it down to one, Shem, okay? Uh, turn with me to Genesis. Oh, number seven was out of place. I still love you, Stephen. Number seven is stuck there at the end of number six. The, uh, verse eleven twenty seven so you know, everybody makes mistakes, right? Uh, at least he got it right over here. 11, uh, 11 um verse oh. Did you just fix that? He's a magician. It's amazing. Technology just passes me by. This is why you hire guys younger than you, right? <laughs> just presses a button. Oh, wow. Look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 11. This is the genealogy of Tara. Who is Tara? Uh, and it's a guy's name, FYI. Uh, Tara is Abraham's father, okay? Uh, among others. So we find the generations of Terah. Look at chapter 25, chapter 25. And we see in verse 12, 25, 12. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael. All right. I want you to see some things here. Adam, Noah, sons of Noah, Shem. Those kind of make sense to you, right? Like they're kind of big players, kind of important dudes in the story of Genesis, right? As we think through their stories, just kind of what rings a bell, we think, oh yeah, sin totally destroyed their lives, but God delivered, right? I mean, Noah's a pretty obvious one. Um, We get the whole Shem thing because you know the Shemites, hence where we get Semite, the Jews come from Shem. Okay, so that's kind of like, okay, I get etymology. I can see that. But all of a sudden we have Terah, well, there's not a whole lot about him, but there's a lot about his son. In fact, we spent a lot of time talking about Abraham, but why isn't he in here? Why doesn't Abraham show up as a Toledoth? Why does Ishmael show up as a Toledoth? Ishmael's not the son of promise, unless you're a Muslim, then he's totally the son of promise, right? Why does is Ishmael show up in 25? Well, that's a great question, and I will answer that some other Sunday. Uh, how about this? Twenty-five, nineteen, and it says now uh oh I'm, i lost my place this is the genealogy of isaac so abraham is skipped we don't even see abraham we just see isaac then what do we see in verse uh, chapter 36 verse 1 another insertion of another dude that gets little screen time and we're kind of like what esau this is the generation of esau what's that all about was esau the guy Or was his twin brother the guy? His twin brother was the guy, you know, the deceiver, the red hairy guy, the non-hairy guy, the red haired guy that was non-hairy, that uh, stole the birthright from his brother Esau. Uh, Sin destroys, doesn't it? It even destroys between families. It destroys brothers and relationships, but God delivers. Okay, then where does it show up the final time? Uh, Genesis 37 verse 2 this is the generation of Jacob now there's kind of a lot of text from chapter 37 on and there's kind of a really important guy in that text Uh, does anybody remember his name he had a coat of many colors got wrongfully accused of stuff you know yeah he fled adultery got thrown into prison his name was Joseph, but why doesn't he show up as a Toledoth? It's a really good question that God has given us an answer for. But the narrative structure in all of these instances shows us sin destroys, God delivers. And even sometimes the main characters, the people we think of as main characters, when we emphasize the main character and we don't emphasize what the text emphasized, we miss the main point. And we so focus on God's chosen, chosen nation. But I want you to look at this really quickly. The generations of the heavens and the earth. That is all things. It's totally comprehensive. What falls under the category of the physical universe? Everything. The supernatural and the natural universe that God created in the beginning. Everything is within this universe. So how comprehensive is God's plan to deliver? Well, it's only exclusively and narrowly for a certain elect group of people, right? Um, Well, actually, God plans to deliver everything about his creation. He will, the earth, uh, Peter says this, the earth and the elements will melt with a fervent heat and God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And we spent a bunch of time talking about that. So even this universe will be recreated because sin destroys everything, including the universe. But God delivers. So look at this briefly as we jump through it. There's the story of creation, generations of the heavens and the earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah. So what happens with Adam? Adam has a son. His firstborn son is a murderer. He begins this lineage of destruction. Uh, He he flees from God and he raises his his descendants to uh, disbelieve and hate God. Unfortunately, by Genesis six the the uh the sons of god uh the descendants of seth the godly line seth through enoch through Noah, the godly line has so polluted itself with the ungodly line, Cain, that the world, the whole world, is full of violence. And God relents that He created man and He promised to destroy the entire earth with a flood. And yet He would set up a means of deliverance through a singular boat that has a singular door. And there's only one way into that boat it's through the door that God put in the side, and God opens and shuts that door. That is a type. Of Messiah to come. And God delivers Noah and his wife, and Noah's three sons and their wives, and they become a second Adam, as it were. And they get the same command that we're gonna see later on to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth and have dominion over the earth. And yet their descendants still follow the way of Cain and they sin. We find Ham, the middleborn, there, the middleborn child. Who somehow, we don't know exactly, it's a bit cryptic in the language, but he sins against God and he sins against Noah, his father. And so God curses him, but the descendants of him happen to be um, the Canaanites, which are a constant thorn in the flesh of the Israelites. They happen to be the Egyptians and the Persians. They happen to be those uh, that are antagonistic to God and God's plan because they followed the way of Cain, their own way, their own devices. Sin always destroys, but God delivers. And so when Shem enters the scene, Shem is the son of promise of Noah. And then Shem nine generations later has Terah. And by the way, we're going to have really fun with the genealogies when we get there. I've been working really hard at some mathematics and I want to showcase some of the cool things that the text shows us about that, but the generations of Tara. Uh, and we understand that his firstborn Abram um, because actually it's not his firstborn, uh, his, his son, Abram, becomes a child of promise but tara is important because abram ends up sending his children to marry into that family right and so tara he becomes a son of promise ishmael is not the son of promise why is ishmael highlighted simply put because abraham and sarah abram and sarai decided that they were going to to try to do things their own way to get the blessing of God. And so their own way resulted in Ishmael and not in the promised son. Because sin always destroys. And when we try to do our own thing and go our own way and fit the square peg of our lives through the round hole of God's perfect will, we always have collateral damage. We get the hammer of our perseverance and our persistence to beat our head against the wall of God's will when we choose to willfully disobey and choose to to, uh, love our sin and love our desires instead of love our God. Sin always destroys. Ishmael is collateral damage. Isaac is the son of blessing. But what about Esau? Again, Jacob, the deceiver, tries to finagle his way around his brother. And Esau is another example of collateral damage. Sin destroys, but God delivers. And then the genealogies of Jacob. And that's the way it goes. The second narrative structure point, I want to actually, def- so I gave you the 11 Toledotes. That is the simplest, most complete way to look at those. But the second narrative point uh, follows these two main points guided by these statements. And here it is. Uh, so, I've summarized these into two sets of five. Okay. So, the beginning of history is in Genesis 1 to 11. Here's the five Toledoths heaven and earth, Adam, Noah, sons of Noah, Shem. Those five fit under the beginning of history. So, how many Toledoths are there? There are 11, but I'm subdividing them into two to make it simpler. And when we work through the, the book of Genesis, we're going to do it in two sections. Section number one, Chapters 1 to 11, the beginning of history. Section number 2, chapters 12 through 50. Okay? To just know that both of those sections have an equal number of hooks. Toledoth sections. Where sin destroys, but God delivers. So the first five are found here. Heaven and earth, Adam, Noah, the sons of Noah, and Shem. All right? The second one is this. the beginning of God's ancestral promise to be fulfilled. What did I tell you in Genesis 3.15, God said about to the serpent in the curse, I will give you a seed, Eve, you being Eve, Eve, I'll give you a seed. The seed will crush the serpent's head, but his heel will be bruised. So here is the fulfillment of God's deliverance. God will give an ancestral promise that will be fulfilled. There will be an Adamic seed that will be reduced to Noah's family, that will be reduced to Seth's family, that will come out of Terah's line, that won't include Ishmael and won't include Esau, but will include Isaac and will include Jacob and will showcase himself through the 12 tribes that were produced out of Jacob. And the book of Genesis ends with an expectation of deliverance in Exodus because, uh, and no, I won't say that. I was gonna give you a Hebrew grammatical thing that's really cool that only matters to me because all of you don't care about the Hebrew grammar. But anyway, uh, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of Genesis and Exodus. But the point is simply this, when we walk through this, the beginnings of the ancestral promises will be fulfilled. We'll see Tara, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Don't worry, Pastor Stephen and I are planning on preaching a lot of messages on Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, okay? We will highlight those because the narrative, even though the hooks are about these guys the narrative expands about the blessing and the promise to the other guys but we want to make sure that those are always balanced out by the way the narrative presents the structure because god divinely inspired the narrative in this way on purpose and if you've never read the book of genesis understanding these truths you've probably missed some of the theological themes because sin destroys but god delivers and anytime you and I insert our will and try to usurp God's will, we will find that sin will always destroy. It will take us farther than we want to go. It'll leave us longer than we want to stay. And it'll have consequences far greater than we want to bear. So the application is this we must trust our God who delivers, and we must reject sin that destroys. Now, you're going to say, oh, pastor, seriously, we're going on to the second point. We are, but I promise there are no subpoints, and I'm almost done. So let's take a look at the second way to analyze Genesis that displays God's deliverance, and that is the theological theme. Now, there are a lot of themes in Genesis. Genesis is multifaceted, but the theological theme of Genesis can be boiled down to something I've said a lot today. And if you wanna say it with me uh, so you get used to 2023's theme, it is this, sin destroys, God delivers. You ready? Let's try that again. What is the theological theme of Genesis? Sin destroys, God delivers. And so as we take a look at the second way to analyze this, the theological theme, this is the theme. God's deliverance displayed in Genesis through theological themes. Now, I'm not going to list all of them today. Um, actually, there I, I uh, bought Pastor Stephen a commentary on Genesis, and we're going to be using the same commentaries to study from. So you're going to hear two different personalities come at the same text with different variety, and some of you are like, amen, I don't have to listen to Pastor Ryan every week. No, uh, most of you are like, I get to listen to Pastor Stephen too, right? Yes, yes, you like listening to Pastor Ryan. Yes. And Pastor Stevens. Yes. Make me feel good. Yeah. OK. I'm All right. So as we think about this text, one of the commentators, I think um, that I read really boiled it down in a very simple and sweet way. So I'm going to read um, a, a, a quote from him um, and then I'm going to summarize a couple of things. He says, listen, as I talked about this book, it falls under two categories, both narrative structure and theological structure. The first chapters one to eleven the second section chapters 12 to 50 and those are kind of two unequal parts right chapters 1 to 11 are rather short comparatively to chapters 12 to 50 Uh, but in chapters 1 to 11 they describe two opposing progressions first god's orderly creation god creates everything in order and its climax is man This chief creation and God has given man responsibility to oversee the earth. But man epically fails because it's a a great anticlimax, the corruption of the world through sin, the first atomic explosion that has ripple effects throughout time. And by the way, that happens twice in that theme, doesn't it? Adam sins and falls then his all of his his genealogy showcase and they show up in one righteous guy who found grace in the eyes of the lord named noah but god has to destroy the whole earth again it's an anti-climax in the corrupt world of the flood and it's then it happens again following that in the tower of babel after god says here i'll bless shem But the descendants of the earth that follow Cain yet again, here they go. They want to do their own thing, go their own way, disobey God. So they create this tower where they want to replace and usurp God. And then God has to confuse their languages. Again, it's climax and anticlimax, climax climax and anticlimax. Three times it happens in the first section. Now, with this general history of man gives way in then chapter 12 to a germinal story of Abraham and his seed. With God's covenant, no longer a general pledge to all mankind, as in chapter 9, but narrowed down to a single family through which all the families of the earth will be blessed. Chapter 12, verse 3 gives that promise. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Aren't you so glad? Can I get an amen? I'm blessed because God decided to deliver. God decided to deliver through a seed of the woman, through a seed of Adam, through a seed of Noah, through a seed of Shem, through, through the seed of Terah, through the seed of Isaac, through the seed of Jacob, through the seed of Jesus. And so Abram, landless and childless, is made to learn that the great promise, the lodestar of his life must be fulfilled divinely and miraculously, or it won't be fulfilled at all. In this context, his uh, uh, His nephew, uh, his hard-headed choice of the cities of the plain and his own desperate attempts at self-protection or raising of a family stand out in contrast to the fruitful way of faith. Abraham and Lot become contrasted together. Abraham walking by faith and living in tents. Lot pitching his tent towards Sodom and then eventually living in Sodom. One, his family is saved and delivered. One, his family is decimated and destroyed. One's family is prosperous and and goes into exile in Egypt and becomes a nation of millions. One's family becomes an incestuous Moab and Ammonite that are antagonistic to the people of God. Sin destroys, God delivers. Uh, So there's no future. The story makes plain in Sodom or Egypt. Or in Ishmael, and there's, there is in the promise Canaan and Isaac, such lessons persist in the remainder of the book of Genesis, as men accept or fight against the will of God over the choice of Jacob and Esau, and in the second generation, then Joseph above his brethren in the third, then Ephraim above Manasseh in the fourth generation, and so by the end of Genesis, the chosen people has begun to take shape. While its cousins and neighbors have settled into their territories and into their patterns of life. But it has migrated meanwhile from the promised land, and the story cannot end at such a point. So Genesis ends with anticipation of God's deliverance because his people are stuck in Egypt and they're nowhere near the land that God promised them to Abraham. So by the book's close, the book has lost nothing of its impetus. Its 50 chapters are the springboard for the greater things of Exodus with its final events demand and its closing words anticipate. It's the only the first of the five fifths of the law, as the law itself is the seed of still bigger harvest. One of the impressive facts of Genesis and in the Old Testament uh, about Genesis is that its forward thrust is a consummation which is foretold yet in detail unforeseen. In other words, God prophesied a deliverer and it's it's clearly sort of being unfolded as a human being to be a second Adam. But we don't yet see how that's going to work out. Right. In fact, when we get to Genesis 39, Genesis 39 is interrupted. The life of Joseph is interrupted with this horrible story of Jacob and how Jacob's children were rebels. And they rebelled against God's way and they refused to bring a seed of promise and they died. God destroyed their line. But this one righteous daughter-in-law decides I need to have a seed and you promised me a seed. And then she makes an unrighteous choice to prostitute herself to Jacob. And yet God in his mercy allows a lineage so that not Jacob, I'm sorry, Judah so that Judah and his lineage is restored. And out of that Atrocity, God builds the beauty of a future ruler who would become David, a Davidic line, a Davidic heir who would become Jesus. And so we're going to see sin destroys, but God delivers. And the message here is today please don't let me lose you. God can make a beautiful story out of your mess. God has already begun to make a beautiful story out of this mess. And let me tell you, friends, when we recognize God's way is always the right way, when we reject sin in our own life and accept God and his love and his direction, no matter how hard, no matter how counterintuitive it is, I promise you God's blessing is greater than sin's temporary reward. You'll find a man named Moses who is the first guy we introduce in Exodus. He is a continuation of the story of Genesis, 400 years after Joseph. But we'll find the man, uh, Moses, who will later be told in Hebrews chapter 11, he didn't consider the temporary pleasures of sin for a season, but was rather willing to reject the temporary pleasures of sin in the acceptance of his maker who would build a city for him to dwell in one day. And he'd deliver a people. So Genesis, in fact, in its various ways, almost nearer the New Testament than the old. In some of its topics, they're barely heard again until the implications can fully emerge in the gospel. The institution of marriage, for example, the fall of man, the jealousy of Cain, the judgment of the flood, the imputed righteousness of the believer, the rival sons of promise and of the flesh, the profanity of Esau, the pilgrim status of God's people. All of these are predominant New Testament themes. They show up in Genesis. So Genesis, the book of beginnings, is more connected to us as New Testament believers than we might possibly imagine. Finally, is the symmetry we see by which some of these very scenes and figures of the earliest chapters appear in the book of Revelation, where Babel, the tower of Babel, becomes Babylon. And that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world, will come to its downfall. And the redeemed, though they are now veterans rather than untried innocents, they will walk again in paradise by the river and the tree of life. You see, Genesis will have its concluding work in Revelation. And when we understand in conclusion, thus today, we've seen that God's beginnings always include his deliverance. As God works in our lives, we must trust our God who delivers and reject sin that destroys. Listen, 2023 is a new beginning. It's a new chapter. I don't know. I know it's, we sometimes laugh at this generation's ways of saying no to the past and moving to, into the future. But there's something to be said about smashing or burning or tossing something that has been a problem in our life. Maybe you need to go home this week and say, honestly, before God, there's been sin in my life that has been destroying me. And it's in the shape of this practice, this idol, this monetary thing, this trouble in my life where I've been clinging to its satisfaction, thinking that it would be better than God. And I need to dismiss that because sin always destroys, but God delivers. We must trust our God who delivers and we must reject sin that destroys. As we start into 2023, may God help us to be men and women who listen to the message of Genesis. Because in the beginning, God, God is at work today in your life, my friend. God will continue to work tomorrow and he will never leave you or forsake you. And there is no path that you can take that will stray away from our great loving almighty Jesus. He is the good shepherd and he will pursue you to the cliffs of destruction because he loves you. He loves you tenaciously and his love is an everlasting love. And friend, if you feel far from God today, can I tell you the only reason why you feel that is because you've turned your back on him. Can you turn back toward his face? Because his face is towards you. He is the father pursuing the prodigal. He is running towards you. He is ready to embrace you. He has not left you, nor has he abandoned you, nor will he ever because he is your loving father. He is daddy. He is Abba. And he has made a way for you to be eternally with him. Don't reject God, accept his love. Sin destroys, but God delivers. Wake up from the pigsty that you're eating as a prodigal. Shake off the mire and the filth and run, run, don't delay. Run back to the loving arms of your father. For he has given himself his greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. And he ever lives to make intercession for you. Friend, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't be discouraged in your sin nature. Don't quit fighting sin because God delivers always in all ways, at all times. Turn from sin into the Savior today.